Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. This is the final chapter of this magnificent book of the Holy Spirit's work to empower the people of God to carry out Christ's mission of expansion. We started this study on April 15th, 2018. So here we are, almost two years later, and we are in the last couple chapters, culminating in chapter 28. This is that journey that Paul takes from Jerusalem to Rome. It takes several years to do so. He's in jail in Caesarea for two years during this time. And then the last chapter, we just studied one of the most uh, harrowing accounts of an ancient shipwreck that has been penned with alarming details. You can just feel as though you were on the ship when it was starting to break apart and people were diving over to try to swim to land. And if you couldn't swim, looking for a plank of wood or something to hold on to to get to dry land. And that's where we pick up. We've looked at this story from two different angles. The first and primary angle, I want to emphasize the primary angle, is the story of God's providence in the life of the Apostle Paul to fulfill his personal promise to Paul to get to Rome, but also to fulfill spreading the gospel all the way to Rome and to show us God's hand upon his people providentially to uphold us so that that mission can be accomplished. We see that on full display, detailed display in these chapters. But secondarily, another angle we might look at it, there's a bit of a metaphor here for sure. Um, There's a bit of a picture of the life of a believer. There's God's promise to bring us along on any mission he calls us to, the holistic mission of the church, but then individually your call as a Christian, the the race you're running that he has for you. Um, There's a metaphor here that he will uphold us, but it could be really rough sailing along the way. doesn't mean he's forsaken us and things will happen. He'll provide for us, though, along the way. He'll give us the encouragement we need as we go, but it could be really rough. And we don't really know when the end of that journey is over. In this case, God sends an angel and tells Paul certain things. We can't be sure of those particulars. What we can be sure of is he'll give us everything we need to complete the mission he has for us as Christians and certainly as the church. And this should give us encouragement when we see this story on display and then recognize its parallel even in our own lives. Smooth waters, rough waters, violent storm, battered but arriving home. Here they are, not yet to their final destination of Rome. And we pick up in the passage, Acts 28, I'll read the first 16 verses of this final chapter of Acts. After we were brought safely through, we, we then learn that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out and because of the heat because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, He was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. 
It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after that, after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as from the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are as Paul is coming to Rome for this final time, coming to the end of this study through this magnificent book of Acts that recalls the expansion of Christ's kingdom, the growth of your church, and the Holy Spirit's empowering of your people. Lord, please encourage us by your word this morning. Give us your strength to carry out the mission of kingdom expansion that you have given us. And on a personal level, there are many things that you call us to. We are in need of your grace and mercy and encouragement every step of the way. Thank you for your constant watch care over us and for preserving this episode so that we might also take courage. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We started the book of Acts chapter 1 almost two years ago reading Acts 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, Rome represented, on some level, the end of the earth. It was the capital of the Western world, a long way from Jerusalem, but it was known the world over. Rome was symbolic of the fulfillment of the gospel, or at least God's empowering them to go to a place they could never imagine reaching when they first received the gospel in Jerusalem. Reaching Rome was the ultimate goal of of Paul's apostolic mission. It seems to be the end of his race as well, individually. You remember back when Paul and his third missionary journey spent a long time in Ephesus? There in Ephesus, Paul writes, or Luke writes about what Paul heard, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia, that's Greece and Achaia, and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he's starting to talk in these terms very vividly already when he's in Ephesus. Interestingly, when he was on one of his other missionary journeys, he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church, or from the Corinthian church to the Roman Christians. So the book of Romans are to those Christians who populated that city, that region, that big area. So it's five years before he actually gets there when he writes the book of Romans and says, 
I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So he looks forward five years ahead to the time he'll get to go to Rome, and he tells the Romans about this. You remember most recently when he went back to Jerusalem for the last time. And there he was in Jerusalem, almost ready to be killed by the mob in Acts 23. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring, them to the, bring him to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Then most, most recently, on the ship, just the day before the episode we look at today, this very night there stood before me an angel, Paul said. And the angel said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. All this buildup. And then we come to verse 14 of chapter 28. Just a simple phrase at the end of the verse. And so we came to Rome. It was a long, arduous journey, to say the least. But God provided Paul with everything he needed to make it to Rome. And that's the greater lesson for us, isn't it? That God provides encouragement for the mission to which he calls us. He will bring us along on that rough road or on the smooth, wall, in the smooth road, in the storms of it. Even though we're battered, he brings us to where he has us ultimately destined. Like Paul, we are all running a race that is our life. It's God's race set before us and we run it every minute. Also like Paul, we have a collective mission as a church to worship God, to serve Christ, and to proclaim Jesus to the world. God provides us with encouragement for the mission to which he calls us. Look at verse 1, and you can see some of this encouragement unfolding right away. After the most difficult of circumstances, a a near-death experience for sure, they survived by getting onto the beach. Verse 1, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Imagine the picture now. They're finally on land, and they look up in their coldness and their wetness and the sand and everything else, and they find out soon after by the inhabitants of the land that they're on Malta. They didn't know that before, and they didn't care. They just saw land, and that's where they arrived. And what an understatement, verse 1. And after we were brought safely through. That's capturing everything that came before. And God bringing us through those elements, when we look back at it, that brings a certain level of encouragement Boy, he got us through a violent storm. I can't imagine how that could have been so, except for the hand of God. You know, it started out smoothly, you remember, in the trip. But things changed at at Myra. As soon as they changed ships, everything got rough. It was difficult sailing down all the way to Crete. Then when they got to Crete, they should have made the decision to stay there for the winter, but they didn't. Instead, they sailed on. And it was then that they got caught in that violent storm. And there's so much... So much detail there given to us. We can almost feel like we were on that ship with them. In that line that Luke says, we had given up all hope. And yet Paul, a vision from the angel, says we're going to survive this. We're going to survive this. That's well and good, Paul, but this ship's going to break apart. And Paul said the ship's going to get lost. Well, that's a pretty big thing, especially if you can't swim. And so here's the, the last run to the beach is the most kind of dramatic of the story, I think. 
Okay, let's shake off everything that's encumbering us and let's drive for the beach. We'll drive for safety. And so they drive forward to the beach, but of course they can't get far enough. The ship's too big and it hits sand and it sticks in the sand or into the rock. And the front of the ship stays firm, but then it starts getting moved in the back and the the wood starts falling off and it's starting to disintegrate. And so they have to make a quick decision and they have to jump off and swim, but not everybody can swim and there's 276 people aboard. And so the simple instruction is grab a piece of wood. Get something, grab something. And they throw everything else off. So grab the wood and you go towards it. And then we come to this opening verse. After we were brought safely through, when we learned that the island, we then learned that the island was called Malta. This encouragement of getting through the elements is something we look back at. We have waves of trials and difficulties, the winds of our own bad choices sometimes, situations that we get ourselves into. And we get on the other side of it. We look back kind of like these, these wet, soggy sailors who are there just happy they're on dry land, free from that travail they had just undergone, realizing that they're alive. God has gotten us through this, these elements, through this mission, and they're encouraged. God will often some, sometimes do something else, oftentimes I should say, to encourage us on the journey. When they're at their helpless state now, um, they're no longer victims of the sea, but they're in a place they don't know, and they're cold and they're wet, and there's 276 of them. Several of them are, are prisoners from Rome. It's at those times that God will often show himself through people, through sending his people we don't even know to help us. Verse 2, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and it was cold. These islanders, they're called the native people, um, this is a term, a Greek term used to describe anybody who, uh, any foreigner who doesn't speak Greek or know the Greek language fluently, they'll be called this general term, these natives of the island. Total strangers to them. And they find these people come ashore in the midst of this storm, exposed to the elements. They could have gotten sick immediately upon reaching the land, but God sent these people to show them care and rescue. And this would encourage them further that God is, in fact, looking out for them. And you know, when you are cold and you are wet, what could be better than a warm fire? And that's what they got right there. You know, there have been countless times I can think of personally where strangers have just shown up to help um, in little matters or in bigger matters. And you can think of times, too, um, when you have had somebody out of the blue, seemingly, help you in some way. Uh, This is a way that God often will encourage us. You know, we plot out everything. We plan everything. We uh, account for all the variables that may come. And stuff still happens that we can't stop. And God shows himself by sending people to help us. It humbles us to have to rely upon people like this. But they depended on these people for their lives as they were out in the elements like this. It was a serious situation that could have become uh, much more critical soon. The native people showed us uh, us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. Something else that we see in this story that's also true of our life in a regular way, in ways we don't actually recognize much unless we stop and think about it. He protects us from perils. You might call them mini perils, things that come up that could trip us up at any time, but they could happen all the time if it were not for the hand of God. Notice what happens in verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire... A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. 
you know how it is. If you've ever seen how snakes do, they're cold-blooded. So therefore, when it's cold, they get under stuff and they'll stay there for as long as it's cold. And their body system shuts down and they can survive a long time basically hibernating. But it doesn't take much. If you just heat it up a little bit, the area around them, they start to get, start to rouse and they're alive pretty quickly. And so here he is carrying this, this stack of wood. The, the snake might have been pretty stiff at the time and puts it in and then the wood then the heat of the fire starts to arouse the snake and the snake jumps, bites his hand. Nasty picture for sure. And the native people see what's happening. They're watching this. And it says what they're thinking when they see it happen. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man's a murderer. You know, they're whispering to each other, look what just happened to him. What terrible luck. I mean, how could this occur? I know how it occurred. He's judged. This is God getting him or the gods getting him. No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. You know, it seems so kind of primitive for them to make that statement, but people think that way all the time. When an accident occurs or an illness happens or some, some travail happens to us, a trial, we ourselves will say to ourselves, what did I do wrong for this to occur? We feel like God works that way. People think that naturally, but it's, a, it's, it's not even really rational if you think about it because if God actually kind of zapped us every time we did something wrong, we wouldn't make it to kindergarten. I mean, I want you to think about this for real. Like how many things that you don't even know about. I'm just going to tell you, there are more things than you know that if God was just going to wait to get you for something because you messed up, um, it, we would all been long gone a long time ago. Now, it's not to say that God doesn't send certain trials to wake us up at moments. It's not to say that he hasn't used these things for discipline in the past. And when the scripture says this is what it's for, we can know it. But in most of our cases, things occur, and we can't pinpoint any one thing. God's certainly not punishing you because all punishment for your sin, even the sin you're committing, has been poured on Christ. It's more a matter of refining us and um, purifying us to make us uh, more like Christ, and in some cases, just to make us love Christ more or hug Christ more or go to God more. Um, and so it's interesting but sad that they have such a reaction when they see a snake bite on the guy's hand. He must be judged. Well, Luke really plays on this irony between their reactions. Um, first, he says in verse 4, no doubt this, or they say, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Verse 5, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. I don't know if this meant that he did it calmly. You know, when you find a spider on you or whatever, you flick that off really quick. It's probably something like that. And he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. Now, I, I'm having the feeling they're just kind of continuing doing what they're doing. There's 276 people plus the native people there keeping their eye on Paul. He's going to drop at any time. This isn't going to go well. And they're whispering, no doubt, between each other. But when they had waited a long time, verse 6, and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their mind and said he was a god. Wait a minute, which is he? Is he a, a condemned murderer on death row with lethal injection, just applied, or is he a god? Which one is he? And that's a little bit of what Luke is trying to show, I think, is a bit of an irony between these two characterizations. John Stott, in his excellent commentary, says, While on Malta, he was first called a murderer, then a god. But the truth was at neither extreme. Instead of being drowned or poisoned, Paul had actually been protected from both fates by Jesus. So God is protecting him through even these small perils that occur. 
in our lives, many of which you don't even know. Close calls all the time, all the time in our lives. And God's hand is always upon us, watching over us. Sometimes we learn of how he helps us escape these things and we can give him praise. But I think our heads would spin if we realized how much God cares for us minute by minute. Think of all the moving parts in our life, in the life that we live in modern, the modern day. Um, you get into your car right after this place, and just that machine itself, we take for granted its power and what it can do. And in fact, there are all sorts of other moving cars around the roads, uh, elements outside, all sorts of possible perils. You know, you fill up gasoline into your car on a regular basis. You go onto the main road and travel, and you don't know what other drivers are doing. Maybe you're responsible, but maybe they're texting, or maybe they're Maybe they're asleep. I mean, who knows what's happening sometimes. There are so many things. It's just that little thing we do all the time that requires God's hand of providence upon us. He sees us through these various perils, and sometimes he lets us know when he saves, them, saves us from stuff. But that's just the times we know. We don't even, we're not even sure of the air we breathe anymore. I read somewhere that you should be careful. You know those little packing pods things that you pop? Well, they're all probably put together in China. So you're breathing air from China every time you pop those little... What possible peril could there be that we can't even imagine? Don't think too hard about that now, but just realize we eat various foods. We do, we do so many things on a regular basis that we don't recognize the hand of God upon, but his hand is there, and in this episode we see an evidence of this or an example of this as the snake bites Paul. So much more could have happened, yet nothing happened by God's hand upon that situation. Something else we find related to the first point with people helping is it's more developed now, the involvement from other people that we see throughout this story as they try to make their way to Rome. We see this woven in their time on Malta for three months. Remember, they're there for three months before they can get in another ship and go up to Rome. And you see God providing hospitality now, not just that initial salvation, you might say, from the elements, but now something more long-lasting, something more involved, something more personally helpful. Verse 2, the native people showed us unusual kindness. So it's a special kind of compassion shown. They kindled a fire and welcomed us all because they had begun to rain and it was cold. God provided for people to recognize their need and they showed them hospitality. But even more so in verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. So they meet this person who's called the chief man, and the word is protos, which is first or prominent or primary. And so he's like a magistrate or he's the tribal leader or just basically function like a governor. Um, now, Luke doesn't say all 70, 276 men were in the household for this time, but Publius provided generously for them in some fashion for a three-day period. Now, this is important. They're going to have three months to stay on Malta. They're going to have to find a way to sustain themselves through doing jobs for a time, whatever it may be that they can find uh, to do so they can sustain themselves. This buys them some necessary time. It's, it's a huge, huge problem to find sustenance for all these men, and yet Here, hospitality is shown when they need it so they can get on their feet, so they can find a way to sustain long-term as they will need to. They honored us greatly, verse 10. When they were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So in three different instances, in verse 2, verse 7, and verse 10, 
you see this action of hospitality from the locals to help Paul along the way. That God would provide people that he doesn't even know to help with important, expensive things to help them along the journey to Rome. It's an encouragement the way God will do this often through others. God will move people to share their resources and energies to help us when we are on God's mission. The stories that Sherry and I could tell you about how God has shown himself in our lives, they're just too many to mention. Um, in small ways and big ways, it just continually, when we get down about something, he would come, step in through people and show some kind of hospitality, some kind of provision that really assured us of his hand upon us and what he wanted us to do. I'll bet you there are those kinds of stories you could have as well. Here's the thing we can learn, not just from Paul's angle, but also what about the angle of the natives? Can't we be or shouldn't we be the kind of people that extend that type of hospitality to other people that come into our, into our lives by God's direction? That we could be the ones that could offer that encouragement along the way for those who have need for that kind of compassion and care and provision. It definitely brings to our minds ways we could act out as people who are showing the hospitality. How might we provide for the material needs of others in the midst of their journey, in the midst of their mission? Uh, This week we have, at the end of the week, our missions conference. Friday night, um, we'll have a time here, a dinner, and then we'll talk about missions there. And then all day Sunday, we'll have our morning speaker, Phil File, our missionary to India. He'll speak, and then Sunday night as well. These are opportunities to get a glimpse of what the Lord is doing in other parts of the world, and then how we could be part of it. Um, how we can help them extend ministry where they are, and we can contribute by materials, for sure, and by, contrib- by our own participation. Uh, these are opportunities for us to realize all the needs that are out there in God's kingdom expansion and how we can jump in and be part of it. And it's encouraging to those who receive that. We know it's true because we've received it ourselves. Now, there's something else that happens along the way in Malta, which I find I'm very encouraging also. Yes, his ultimate journey is to Rome where he will testify to Christ. But that doesn't mean while he's in Malta for three months that he shouldn't be doing anything ministry related. In fact, it's really not the best definition to say doing something ministry related. All of us Christians, if we just live our life for Christ, wherever he has us, we'll have multiple opportunities to minister for Christ. Just because you're a Christian, you're an ambassador for Jesus, in the way you act towards other people and what you can say towards others will manifest Christ. And he gives us these opportunities in our daily life regularly so that we might be encouraged in the big mission he's called us to. I believe that's true in every sense, and we see it kind of play out here also. Look at verse 8. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. So they're in that three-day span where Publius is taking care of all these people. And it comes to Paul's attention. It doesn't say that Publius went to him and said to Paul, could you please heal my father? How does he know Paul could even do that? But Paul comes to learn it, or at least Luke describes that they understood or found out that this was the case. It says in verse 8, And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. So God gives Paul this opportunity for ministry in the midst. And especially in the first century, when there were opportunities to bring the name of Christ to places where he had not been proclaimed yet and the people didn't know, you can see the apostles, like Jesus, being given the ability to heal folks like this. Because it, it makes them aware 
that they have a, a word to speak. It's not all about their healing, but the healing gives them credibility for the message they'll give. That's commonly how Jesus ministered, and we see the apostles doing the same thing. And here's Paul and Malta, where we can assume there's no witness for Christ yet at this point. And so God gives him this ability to give healing to Publius's father, and that brings attention to who he is. And even though the text doesn't fill out yet another sermon from Paul, does anyone here doubt in the three minutes after, let alone the three months after, that Paul wasn't all about laying out the message of Christ? The healing was just setting the stage for him to be able to give the message like it is everywhere else in the New Testament. He gives us ministry opportunities as we're going along the way on our greater mission, you might say. Verse 9, when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island, Malta's not small, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. So people were coming from all over the place now to meet this guy who healed folks. And as we would expect, I'm sure Paul had opportunity to profess and proclaim the gospel. In fact, you can imagine how many times he must have had to tell people, why are you here, Paul? Why is this Jew from Jerusalem here on a ship with people with prisoners and Roman centurion? Why are you here? Well, let me tell you why I'm here. And Paul lays out why he's there. So all of this uh, this bigger ministry picture, tons of other micro-ministry opportunities occur as he's going along the way. As believers, we live a life uh, joyfully ministering to others. It really is at the heart of who we are as Christians. And think about all the ways you have to minister to people in the name of Jesus. Um, your family, obviously, in our church context, but you all have friends outside of the church. You have co-workers outside of the church, classmates, friends from the past that you still are in contact with, maybe sports team friends, um, people in your neighborhood, um, other associations that bring you into contact with people. And you are light. You are light for the gospel. And I don't mean that you have to be all preachy every moment, but the fact that you just carry yourself as one who is relieved of the burden of your sin because you know Christ has taken it, it really does change your demeanor in a way you may not even recognize. So as you live your life for Christ around people, you'll have opportunity, many opportunities for ministry in Jesus' name, more than you can possibly imagine. If you just ask the Lord to help you recognize those, I think you'll find they are plentiful. Paul spent three months waiting for the weather to break so he could finish his journey to Rome. He didn't sit around. He was active in ministry. Something else God will do to encourage us along our way is to give smooth sailing at just the right time. A lot of it's rough waters. There's no doubt we've seen that. There are storms in the midst of it. But there are also these epics in time where he just gives you a a, a reprieve and it bolsters your confidence that you're doing the right thing because God gives you a push that's clearly from him. Verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered on the island. There were many ships probably pulled into port that were waiting for the winter to end. But notice where the ship's from. This would have given me pause anyways. A ship of Alexandria. That's the same place that the first ship that was wrecked and at the bottom of the Mediterranean at this point, where that came from. I would have been, I'll pause just a little bit. Could we pick a ship from somewhere else? But they picked the one from Alexandria. It's the one they're supposed to go on. I'm sure these sailors knew what they were doing. It was a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. This is an interesting detail note that Luke is fond to give us. I believe he gives these kinds of details to root the story in actual history. And I'm sure for some generations after this, maybe that particular boat uh, became known because it had a, it had a customized carving, the twin gods, 
on its, on its front. And basically, this is the Greco-Roman mythological twin characters of Castor and Pollux. They're the, the gods of navigation and the patrons of the seafarers. It's not that they believed any of this, Paul and, and company, but it just tells you this is a real ship. Luke's watching something. He's writing it down like he's writing a log, and he's describing the ship, rooting it in history, and showing us the truth of what he's describing. And so they take off from Malta finally after three months. In verse 12, they go all the way up to Sicily, the beloved island of Sicily. Why would someone go to Sicily and then leave Sicily? Can't imagine. But in this case, putting in at Syracuse, Syracuse, if you think of the island of Sicily, the boot of Italy and then the island in front of it, it's at the east side of the island and the lower portion of it. They get to Syracuse and they stayed there for three days. And they're just there gathering their strength. The winds were still working well for them. The going was smooth, finally, after all that journey they had before. Verse 13, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petoli. So Regium is right across the Straits of Messina. So they went from Sicily right over to the tip of the boot. And then from the boot, instead of staying very much longer, they realized the wind was coming from the south. And they were able, because of the wind, to go all the way from the tip of the boot there, all the way up to where you can imagine Rome at the north of Italy, just south of there, 200 miles in the water, one day because they had the wind at their back. What a difference from the other part of their trip. But as the wind blew from the south, that push came to Paul and he knew he was going to see Rome. He was finally going to get there. And I think that this is descriptive of what God will do in our lives from time to time just when we need it, need it, just when we're ready to give up. We're tired of the journey. We can't handle it anymore. And God gives us a push in some way that's clearly from him. It's not something we devised, something we, we planned out, but he gives us that push that we need. And there they are finding themselves in verse 13, um, just 140 miles from the city of Rome after all of this buildup. And what he does when he gets to Italy, when they get to, uh, to Puteoli and then after that on their way to Rome, the city, is something else that he does for us and he provides for us on a regular demonstrable, in a demonstrable way. Verse 14, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. So as soon as they come to land, there are Christians there who keep them for a week. Um, they don't know these Christians before, at least we're not sure they do. Now, we know that Paul knew Roman believers, that's who he was writing to, and in the book of Romans, he names people, um, he puts them by name, so he knew people lived in Rome, but Paul meets Christians there, and that had to be an encouragement to him, um, to get near Rome, this place that was going to be scary for him, to have to stand before Caesar's court and testify to Christ, knowing this could mean his life. It probably would mean his life. And so for the first seven days, when he gets closer to Rome, he has Christians there. He has koinonia. He has fellowship with other believers. And this is something supernatural that we have as believers. A communion across all sorts of other barriers because we are in Christ. Jesus in common gives us an immediate connect with our family members in the body of Christ. And this fellowship is a consistent form of encouragement for believers. It's one of the most discouraging things to be isolated from other believers. And here they come to, the, to Italy, not far from Rome now, and for a week they have time to spend with those who are believers. But it doesn't stop here. God continues to encourage Paul and his company with this Christian fellowship. Verse 15, And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius in the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. 
Now at the end of verse 14, when it says very subtly, and so we came to Rome, this means as they left Puteoli, they got to um, the greater Roman area. It's an area that, that goes far around and the Appian Way goes right up into the heart of the city of Rome. So it says twice they got to Rome. It means the first time, the region, and then the city itself. And on the way to the city itself, people knew that Paul was there, and they started traveling from 30 to 50 miles away to spend time with him briefly, to encourage him. And I love what it says in verse 15, because it gives us a better picture of what encouragement means. We all want to be encouraged and to give encouragement, but the word itself tells us a lot about what it is. On seeing them, fellow Christians, Paul thanked God for them. He knew it was supernatural, their connection and their being there, and took courage. It's like they had courage to give, and Paul took some from them because he needed it. Um, They brought him their courage, and he took from their courage, and he was encouraged. That's what Christians do for each other. That's what you can do for other Christians, especially when they're discouraged, when they're lacking courage when they're lacking the ability to hold up under whatever it is, fellowship brings them encouragement, and you can take, and it's okay to take that courage from them. That's where they're giving it. That's why their presence is there. Sometimes just your mere presence, knowing you're a fulfillment of God's promise, is to give encouragement. And that's what we see Paul needing, especially because he's going to spend a lot of alone time He's going to be depressed for a while when he's in Rome. We know this from what he says in his epistles about his time when he was actually in Rome, waiting for trial, when he was there chained to a Roman soldier. So this encouragement was something that would build up a store for him so we could draw on it later. Verse 16, and when we came into Rome, now the city, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. He was put in some kind of a a holding space, a little nicer than a jail, probably like the place he was uh, staying in when he was in Caesarea, and he had chained to him, and a, a lengthy chain, it wasn't right close, but one where the Roman soldier would stay right with him and watch him day, day and night. He could have friends come in and out, but the soldier would be there. Could you imagine that soldier's tale to tell, to be chained to the Apostle Paul like this? But this, by God's providential appointment, was the end of his journey to get into the city of Rome, but still the beginning of the ministry God would have for him there. It's true that God gives us the encouragements we need to fill, fulfill the mission that he's called us to. And we see it in, life, in the life of Paul. When Paul was in Ephesus, he said, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. When he was writing to the Romans, he said, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Then he says, when he's in Jerusalem, the Lord stood by me and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me here in Jerusalem, you must testify in Rome also. And when he was in that ship, ready to sink, that very night, an angel stood before him and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And then verse 14 of our text today, And so we came to Rome. God provides encouragement for the mission to which he calls us. Like Paul, you and I, we are all on a race that is our life. It's God's race set before us, and we run it every minute. Also, like Paul, We have a collective mission as a church to worship God, to serve Christ, and to proclaim Christ to the world. God provides us with encouragement for the mission to which he has called us because it can be a very difficult mission indeed. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the book of Acts, for its vivid depiction of what these events that happen, 
in the first century that relate to us directly as they give us the story of the uh, founding of the church post-resurrection, the sending of your spirit, your hand of providence. It also shows us how you work in the life of your children, and it gives us encouragement. We take courage from what we read in your word. I pray that your people here would take courage from what they have read to recognize that you, Lord, the same God who worked all these things, um, works personally in our lives and in the lives here of my brothers and sisters. Give them great encouragement to be bold for you. Give us many opportunities to minister in Christ's name. And may we every, every day grow in our love of Christ and an appreciation for this magnificent, amazing grace that you've shown us in him. In Jesus' name, amen.